So we have been preaching through the Gospel of John, and last week we looked at John chapter 20, verses 19 through 22. And I was tempted last week when we looked at John 20, 19 through 22, just to tack on a brief exploration of verse 23 at the end of the sermon and treat it sort of at paragraph length. But this is what John chapter 20 and verse 23 says. Jesus is speaking to his disciples and he says, If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. This is a very loaded statement. It has a lot packed in there. And so I thought better of just tacking on a very brief exploration of this at the end of last sermon in passing. And I decided to treat this at full uh, sermon length this morning. So today we're literally just looking at that one verse, John chapter 20 and verse 23, where Jesus says, If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. What does this mean? As you might imagine, there is some debate. Of course, Jesus, as the Son of Man, has authority on earth to forgive sins, as he himself taught us in Mark chapter 2 and verse 10. The best explanations, then, are these. That either, A, that Jesus grants this authority to forgive sins, which he himself has, to the original apostles and they alone to act on his behalf. And so the original apostles had authority, the very authority of Jesus to forgive or to withhold forgiveness of sins. Or B, that Jesus granted that authority to the original apostles and Jesus grants this authority to the contemporary church also. That this is not only for the original apostles, but for all uh, God's people throughout time, that the church has authority to forgive sins or to withhold the forgiveness of sins. Or, C, that in principle, Jesus endorses the decisions of the church pertaining to forgiveness and the withholding of forgiveness. These are basically the three options that we have as we come to consider this passage. And to explore the merits and demerits of each view is our aim this morning. By way of forewarning, you're going to have to gird on the loins of your mind for the next 45 minutes to an hour, as the Apostle Paul would put it. Or put your thinking caps on, as we might say a little bit more colloquially. This sermon will be a little longer than usual and a little heady. But it's crucial that we understand this verse properly for nothing less than salvation is at stake. And so if you are concerned to rightly understand matters pertaining to the salvation of your soul and the role of the church with respect to the salvation of your soul, it's worth putting your thinking cap on. It's worth girding up the loins of your mind. So let's begin by exploring the first potential explanation of this passage, which I gave you just a moment ago. Namely, that Jesus grants the original apostles authority to forgive or to withhold 
forgiveness for sins. Now, to me, this is perhaps the most compelling, incorrect explanation. But it is indeed compelling, and yet it is also indeed incorrect, for reasons which I will explore in, in a few moments. But let me first explain why it's compelling. In our sermon series on Ephesians, which is now a few years back, and I know a number of you were not here for our sermon series on Ephesians, I explained what an apostle is. And uh, those of you who were here at that juncture, uh, will this will be a repeat content for you, but bear with me as I review it for those who are not here with us at that time and for our study. Sinclair Ferguson, who's a Presbyterian pastor in the U.S., explains in his commentary on Ephesians that, quote, the Greek word apostolos meant a sent one. It was sometimes used in classical literature for a naval expedition, the commander of which might also be known as an apostolos. The authority of an apostle to speak and act was therefore dependent on the nature of the authority of his sender, who is the apostolos sent by, whose authority does he bear, whose commission is he on. This is why, Ferguson says, it's important to notice that the word is used in more than one way in the New Testament. It is used of Jesus himself in Hebrews chapter 3 and verse 1, as the Son whom God sent into the world. So Jesus is an apostle of our faith, sent by God into this world. John chapter 3 and verse 16 and 17. The word apostolos is also used of the 12, or we might say the 13, which is the original 12 minus Judas plus Matthias, who was added in Acts chapter 1 or 2. And then plus Paul. Jesus called and trained these 13 to be part of the foundation of the church. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 20. So these men are apostles of Christ Jesus. Commissioned by him and sent by him and bearing his very authority. And then thirdly, the word apostolos is sometimes used in scripture of believers commissioned by their congregation for special service. In this sense, apostle and missionary mean basically the same, Sinclair Ferguson says. The former term is derived from the Greek, the latter from Latin, both meaning to send. Barnabas and Saul were both apostles in this sense, Acts 14 and verse 14, sent out by the church at Antioch. So you would say they are apostles of the Antiochian church, right? In this sense, and in this sense alone, right, but to help enumerate the meaning, you could say, because I was sent by the church in Toronto to come and start this church here, I'm an apostle of the church in Toronto. You understand? I, I don't use that title apostle for myself, but strictly speaking, what it means is I sent one. And so, apostle of whom should be the question when someone says that they are an apostle? And if they say an apostle of Jesus Christ, what that would mean is that they have the very authority of the sender. And that is what the scripture teaches us, that Jesus 
invested in the 13. The 12 minus Judas plus Matthias and Paul. Charles Hodge says it this way, that these 13 were, quote, plenipotentiaries of Christ, which is a big word. But he says that is, men whom he personally selected and sent out invested with full authority to teach and to rule in his name. Then, these 13, as plenipotentiaries of Christ, Hodge goes on to say, were not confined to any one territory, but had general jurisdiction over the churches, as is manifest from their letters. So, the ambassador of a country in another country is authorized to actually like say stuff on behalf of his home country, to do stuff, to enter into agreements and arranges, arrangements on behalf of his home country. Jesus vested the original apostles with this big word, plenipotentiary power, which means that they could actually say, thus saith the Lord. They could actually rule definitively on, say, a conflict or a controversy in the church. They could say, that is false doctrine. This is true doctrine. They could command the pastors in the church to do something, as they did in the, in the pastoral epistles. They could command whole congregations to do something. And not just any particular one, but as Hodge notes, they had authority over the church as a whole. These men bore the authority of Jesus to teach and to rule in his name. So the original apostles were sent by Christ Jesus in a unique way. Not common to all of Christ's people. They exercised all the authority Christ himself. I can't just go into any church and say, no, I, I disagree with that, you can't do that. I can't go exercise that kind of authority, even, frankly, in this church, ultimately. I might, I might say something like that, but if the whole church said, well, we, we reject that, John, you have every right to do so, right? That um, I don't have that kind of unquestioned, unchecked, unlimited authority, even in this church, let alone over every church. I can't go wade into a doctrinal dispute of another church and pronounce the infallible answer to that dilemma or that difficulty. But the original apostles could. That is what actually their job was to establish the foundation of the church. And so even the words of the prophets were to be weighed against apostolic teaching to see if the prophets were genuine or not. And so, the original apostles were sent by Jesus in a unique way. So it would be somewhat natural to interpret John chapter 20 and verse 23 as meaning that the apostles were not only invested with the power and the authority to teach and to rule in Christ's name, but also to forgive and to remit sins in Christ's name. And you see, actually, pronouncements very close to that in the book of Acts. And so when we think biblically about the authority of the apostles, which we know to be uh, at least to teach and to rule in his name, and when we look at what they're doing in the book of Acts, it would actually be pretty natural to conclude that Jesus invested the authority to actually forgive and to withhold forgiveness of sins to these men. Of course, the Roman Catholic Church today 
believes that as successors to the original apostles, that her ministers retain that same authority to forgive or to withhold forgiveness of sins. Because, as their thinking goes, Jesus granted it to the original apostles here in John chapter 20 and verse 23. And since the ministers of our church, they say, are the direct successors of the apostles, then we have that same authority that the original apostles had. Now, their conclusion is not a necessary inference from the position that the original apostles were vested with this power. In other words, it could be true, if the Catholics are right, that their ministers are direct successors to the apostles, vested with all their power. But if the Catholics are wrong, then their ministers are direct successors to the apostles, vested with all their power. Then it could simply be the case that just the original 13 were vested with this power to forgive sins or to withhold the forgiveness of sins. So in other words, if we were to take this first position that the original 13 were vested with this power, we wouldn't necessarily have to concede all that the Roman Catholic Church loads into this passage. And given the immense authority that the original apostles indisputably did have over the church by virtue of their unique commission from Christ, it's not that much of a stretch, actually, to believe that perhaps Christ vested them with authority to actually forgive sins or withhold the forgiveness of sins throughout the course of their ministry. This is why I find this explanation the most compelling, incorrect explanation. It is indeed incorrect for reasons that I'll explain in a few moments. But I hope I've shown you that there's some compelling substance to taking this sort of view. I can understand, in other words, how people get there. Let's introduce the second incorrect explanation, and then I'll deal with disproving both the first and the second incorrect explanations together. The second incorrect explanation is this, that not only did Jesus grant this authority to these original 13, but Jesus also grants the contemporary church authority to forgive or to withhold sins. Now, as I've already explained, the Roman Catholic Church indeed believes that the contemporary church has this authority. And they believe it by virtue of apostolic succession. They believe that their ministers have been vested with the authority to forgive or to remit sins by virtue of apostolic succession. But there are also non-Roman Catholic ways of understanding this concept too. Perhaps pastors have this authority to forgive or to withhold the forgiveness of sins. Perhaps whole congregations have the authority to forgive or to withhold forgiveness of sins. Perhaps if a church is biblically organized and constituted and has sound doctrine, then it has authority to forgive or to withhold the forgiveness of sins. Can you see that however we might understand the details of it, like who specifically, or by what mechanism specifically? Can you see that 
the basic premise of this second explanation of this passage is that not only the original apostles, but also the church today in some form, whether the Roman Catholic leadership, whether Protestant leaders, whether congregations, whatever, that the church today, not only the original apostles, but also the church today, has the authority to forgive or to withhold the forgiveness of sins. The interpretation of this passage, then, would be that Jesus wasn't just speaking to the apostles, but that Jesus was speaking to the apostles as representative of the whole church. And so just like the sending in verse 21 was for the whole church, so the giving of this authority to forgive or to withhold forgiveness of sins was for the whole church. And so just like the Great Commission didn't stop after the apostles died, neither did the authority of the church to forgive or to withhold the forgiveness of sins. This is basically the second view here. And in this way, the second explanation is similar to the first. In both of these explanations, Jesus, the Son of Man, as the Son of Man, has authority to forgive sins. And not just God alone, as his detractors say in Mark chapter 2 and verse 10. Remember, the paralytic comes through the roof, and Jesus says, Son, your sins are forgiven. They say, he's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? So remember, it's not Jesus that said God alone can forgive sins. It's his detractors. And then Jesus says, so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Rise up and walk. In other words, he's showing that he's not just blowing smoke because he tells the paralytic to stand up and walk. And because he told the truth about that, it should lend credibility to the idea that he has authority on earth to forgive sins. That's what's happening in Mark 2. And so we know that Jesus, the Son of Man, as the Son of Man, in other words, in his messianic role, right, the man Christ Jesus, has been granted authority by God to forgive sins. And so if one man has been given authority by God to forgive sins, then both in the first explanation and in the second explanation of this passage, all that's being argued is that Jesus conferred that on other men. That's really it, isn't it? Whether it's the original apostles, whether it's the original apostles plus all of the Roman Catholic church leaders, whether it's the original apostles plus all the Protestant church leaders, whether it's the original apostles plus every Christian everywhere. Like, it doesn't matter, in a sense, how you work out the details. The basic premise of the argument is that Jesus, the man, had authority to forgive sins, and that he, can, uh, he conferred that authority that he had as a man to forgive sins upon other men. Here's the problem with all of these explanations. Those who want to say that the original apostles had authority to forgive sins or to withhold forgiveness of sins. Or those who want to say the original apostles plus the Roman Catholic Church or the original apostles plus the Protestant Church. Or what, however, here's the basic problem with all of that. These explanations are irreconcilable with other passages of Scripture. And this is a basic principle of biblical interpretation. 
One passage of Scripture cannot contradict another. So if there are two possible ways of interpreting any one particular passage, but one of those ways would bring that passage into conflict with another passage over here, then that particular interpretation cannot be right. So if there's two, and that one's not right, then by process of elimination, the other option must be correct. If there's two ways of understanding passage A, but the first way of understanding passage A brings it into conflict with passage B, then the first way of understanding passage A must be incorrect. And it must be the second possible way of understanding passage A, which doesn't bring it into conflict with passage B, which is correct. We cannot interpret one passage of scripture in such a way that brings it into actual conflict with another passage of scripture. Sure, there are hard things to understand. Sure, there are things that at face value might seem to conflict. But our job is to figure out how it all fits together. Because though there are multiple human authors, we believe that all scripture is given by inspiration of God. And it is not going to ultimately actually be in conflict. And this is the fundamental idea which is in conflict with the first two incorrect explanations of John chapter 20 and verse 23, which I've outlined so far. Here's the fundamental biblical idea, which makes those first two explanations impossible. As 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 5 says, there is one mediator between God and man. The man, Christ Jesus. And if there is one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus, then there cannot be two mediators. Let alone 14. The 13 original apostles plus Jesus. Or 204. The 203 cardinals of the Roman Catholic Church today, plus Jesus, or 10,000. You see, if there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, then there are not any more than one. But that is exactly the situation we would find ourselves in if indeed men other than Jesus had authority on earth to forgive sins. Because then you could go deal with Jesus, or if you preferred, you could go deal with someone else. As long as you could persuade that other person, by whatever means, to forgive your sins, someone other than Jesus could do it, and you'd be good to go. You would have bypassed Jesus. So you could find a pastor or a priest or someone that has this authority who is tender and compassionate, who is a soft touch, maybe a little bit naive, and you could go to him and you could tell your sob story and you could spin it to just make him feel compassionate towards you. 
and you could convince him to forgive you. Or you could take a more rigorous route and you could put on a real good external front and you could pass muster before a strict pastor or priest. Or you could go into a strict church that's real serious and you could convince them to forgive your sins. You could deal with someone other than Jesus for forgiveness of sins, if indeed anyone other than Jesus had actual authority to forgive your sins or to withhold forgiveness from you. And all you have to do is convince them to do it, even if inwardly you're a fraud. And this is so clearly not the case from Scripture. Jesus said in John chapter 14 and verse 6, I am a way. I am a truth. I am a life. Many do not come to the Father. Are you, are you picking up on this distortion? I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. This means at least that Jesus' work is the basis of coming to God. And some might say, well, yes, the basis of your forgiveness is always the work of Jesus, but someone else can actually pass along the forgiveness to you. Alright? Some will argue, some will go that way. That's what we mean, right? We know that the work of Jesus is the basis of the forgiveness that the priest gives you. Right? But the priest still has authority to give it to you or to withhold it from you. Or the pastor or the congregation or whoever. But listen here. We must conclude on the basis of Scripture that not only is forgiveness on the basis of Jesus' work, but forgiveness must be obtained by dealing with Jesus directly. You must deal with Jesus. I cannot forgive you. This church cannot forgive you. And there is no church on the face of this earth that can deal in forgiveness. You must deal with Jesus directly. Listen to what he said in John 6.35. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will not hunger. John chapter 7, verse 37. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Also, John chapter 10 and verse 14, to provide just one more example among many. And I'm quoting them all from John here so that you can see that when we get to verse or to chapter 20, John's not all of a sudden saying a different thing. John chapter 10 and verse 14. I am the good shepherd. I know my own. And my own know me. You can't go get the forgiveness of Jesus from anyone but Jesus. You can't go get your hunger satisfied from anyone but Jesus. You can't go get your thirst quenched from anyone but Jesus. 
Jesus said, if you're hungry, come to me. If you're thirsty, come to me. I know my own, and my own know me. And people that have dealt with the church, but haven't dealt with Jesus, are going to say to him one day, but Lord, Lord, I was in the church. I did many mighty things in your name. And Jesus is going to say what? I never knew you. You see, that's church people in Matthew chapter 7. People that have dealt with the church, who have been busy in the church, but people who have not dealt with Jesus. Depart from me. I never knew. I know my own. And my own know me. You see, Jesus' work is not only the only is not only the basis of our forgiveness. As if it could be the basis, but it could be dispensed by somebody else. Like something manufactured in another country could be sold to you by someone here. Like the work of Jesus manufactured abroad could be sold to you by someone local. No, no. Not only is the work of Jesus the basis of your forgiveness, but you need to go to Jesus yourself directly to get it. There is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. Listen carefully, each and every person in this room and everyone watching online, you must deal with Jesus directly. Each and every one of you. There is no man. There is no woman. There is no church. There is no denomination. There is no group of people that you may deal with instead of Jesus. You can't bypass Jesus and choose another mediator. No one else has authority on earth to forgive sin. You must go to Jesus and ask him, on the basis of what you have done for me, you, Jesus, please forgive me. Count my sins atoned for because of your work on the cross. Gift me your righteousness. Without money and without price, let me buy it, as Isaiah puts it. I can't afford it. Gift it to me. And then count me as righteous for the righteousness you give me. Though you don't have to say those exact words, something like that is what is meant when the Bible says, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. This is what believing in Jesus is. When a preacher tells you, come to God in faith, come to Christ today, that's something like what it means. You, go deal with Jesus today. Something like that. This is what believing in Jesus is. Dealing with Him directly and trusting in His life and death for your salvation. And believing that as He was raised, so you will be raised for His sake and on the basis of His work. So come, unbeliever, come. Come to Jesus. He said, whoever comes to me, whoever comes to me, I will never cast Deal this morning with the only mediator that there is between God and man. The man, Christ Jesus. So John 20 and verse 23 cannot mean 
that Jesus actually vests authority in anyone else to forgive or to withhold the forgiveness of sins. Otherwise, there would be multiple mediators and the very substance and essence of the gospel would be other than what the rest of the scriptures tell us it is. So it can't be that. But all I've done so far is tell you what this verse doesn't mean. If I stopped here, you'd say, well, that was a browsing reminder that we need Jesus. But I still don't understand John chapter 20 and verse 23. See? It doesn't mean that. It means this, though. It means that in principle, Jesus endorses the decisions of his church pertaining to the forgiveness and the withholding of the forgiveness of sins. As we've already seen, the church cannot actually forgive someone's sins who has not dealt directly with Christ. You can't get salvation by baptizing, or by, not baptizing, by bypassing Christ and coming to the church. And by implication, if someone truly has dealt with Christ, the church can't overrule Jesus and keep that person out of heaven. If that person has gone to Jesus in faith, Jesus said, whoever comes to me, I'll never cast out. But the church says his sins are withheld. Nah, you can't overrule, the church can't overrule Jesus. The church can't give forgiveness of sins that's to someone that hasn't dealt with Jesus. The church is not a mediator. Nor can the church overrule and pronounce someone unforgiving when Jesus himself has forgiven someone. In this way, ultimately, as we so often think, in Christ alone, my hope is found. But Jesus is here assuring his disciples in John chapter 20 that as they go into the world on this mission of global evangelism and discipleship, as we talked about last week, Jesus grants them authority to make decisions about people's spiritual state. And Jesus endorses, in principle, the judgments that they make. Matthew Henry puts it this way. Christ Jesus here gives authority to the church to apply the general rule of the gospel to particular persons. <clears throat> this is the context here. Remember, Jesus appears to the disciples and he says in verse 21, As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. As we talked about last week, God so loved the world that he sent his Son into it to redeem the world, right? Not to condemn the world, according to John 3.17, but in order that the world through him might be saved. Jesus came on a redemptive mission, sent by the Father. And Christ Jesus so loves the world that he sent us into it. This is the context of this statement. Even so, I am sending you. What Jesus is doing here in John chapter 20 and verse 23 is endorsing the church's authority to evaluate someone's profession of faith. One standing in the Christian faith is not a private or personal matter that is nobody else's business, but something subject to the scrutiny of the church. 
as the task of global evangelization and discipleship mentioned in John chapter 20 and verse 21 is not the purview of the apostles alone, but it belongs to the whole church. Neither does any individual alone possess the authority to declare who is forgiven and who is not. So, just like one person can't go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, so one person cannot forgive, or, or sorry, cannot um, declare who is forgiven and who is not. But as the church has the job of evangelizing and discipling the world, the church has the authority commensurate with that task, as Matthew Henry says, to apply the general rule of the gospel to particular persons. In other words, Jesus knows that this authority will be necessary as the church goes to make disciples to bring people into the faith in the first place and to train them up. Jesus knows that they're going to have to say to someone, your sins are not forgiven. Because there are going to be false professors, hypocrites, and heretics who try to infiltrate the church. As Jesus, or pardon me, as Paul warned the Ephesian elders in Acts chapter 20, men will arise from your own midst speaking twisted things. What Jesus is doing here is investing his church with the authority to say that person is not a legitimate Christian. That person's sins are not forgiven. This person's sins are forgiven. Those pers that person's sins are not forgiven. Jesus is giving his church authority to demarcate who is forgiven and who is not forgiven. Having authority to exclude people from the community of the faith, declaring that they are not forgiven people, but that they remain on the outside will protect the church from gospel distortion. It will help the naive not to be deceived who is real. It will protect the church from copycats who might feel like, well, if he can sin with impunity... Or deny clear truths about God that he doesn't like and still be numbered among the forgiven, then why can't I? It will protect the integrity of the message, preserving the truth that Jesus actually does make a difference in the lives of his own. We're not perfect by any means, but real change has happened in those who actually have come to know Christ who have dealt directly with Him, who have been forgiven and who are known reciprocally by Christ. God's grace is not impotent to justify, nor is God's grace impotent to sanctify, to make holy. The church has the leverage given by Christ in this passage to press an individual on an issue and say, you are not giving evidence that you are a Christian. And if you do not repent of this, we will treat you as an unforgiven person. 
The church has the authority to make application of the general rule of the gospel to particular persons, as Matthew Henry says. In view of this authority, the individual ought not to dismiss the church's judgment as irrelevant or as unimportant. The individual ought not to think that the church is overstepping her bounds when the church scrutinizes her, his or her profession of faith. The individual ought not to think that this is none of the church's business. Can the church be wrong? Let me hear it. Yes. Sure. The church may be wrong. That's why I say that this passage teaches in principle that Jesus endorses the decisions of his church pertaining to the forgiveness of sins or the withholding of forgiveness. If someone has truly dealt with Christ and the church operating incorrectly, either making a sincere but erroneous assessment of the information or a church making a sinfully prejudiced and unfair decision, if someone truly has dealt with Christ, but the church judges someone an unbeliever and excludes them from the church, Jesus will not disown that person. You're not saved by the church. You're saved by Jesus, remember? There is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. Remember that Jesus said in John chapter 10 and verse 28, no one will snatch them out of my hand. That includes erring Christians and churches. Even, even churches that don't deal properly with someone cannot snatch someone who belongs to Christ out of his hand. No one can separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord if you truly belong to him. But the point of this passage is that the church has the authority, humanly speaking, to declare whether you are truly his, whether you have the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord, or whether you don't, that it's very much the church's business to examine that and to rule on that, and that Jesus endorses, in principle, the default position of Jesus is to endorse the church's decision on such matters. The exception would be where a church is erring, in which case, of course, Jesus isn't going to reverse course on the salvation of an individual because of an errant church. Now, in our day and age, this is important, especially important to understand because we're such an individualized people. COVID has really brought it up. My rights, my preferences, my personality, my gifts, my identity, etc. And therefore, so many people today would say something like this, no one can tell me whether I'm a Christian or not. Right? Oh, this church presumes to actually examine and scrutinize my profession of faith. How arrogant. How would they even know my heart? Right? You, you see what? This is a very, very, very predominant mentality. Whether people use those exact words or not, you come across that exact thing. According to this passage, 
Well, the church may make an erroneous judgment. It's very possible for the church to err. It is indeed the church's prerogative to make a determination about the standing of someone before God. In principle, Jesus endorses that process. By way of application, there are two aspects to consider. One is that the individual should subject himself or herself to the scrutiny and the examination of Christ's church and take heed to himself that he is not deceiving himself by telling himself that he is a Christian when no one has examined his profession of faith and it is not yet a matter of public record. Remember what membership signifies, that when we bring someone in, we're saying, yeah, we, we've examined this person's profession of faith and we believe them to be a legitimate Christian. It becomes a matter of the public record. No one should deceive himself, not having gone through that process, that, sure, of course, he's a Christian, if there has never been that examination and that scrutiny. He may be, but the proper examining body that God has instituted has not yet ruled on the matter. And having joined the church, one should be especially careful of avoiding or rebelling against a church discipline process if such a situation should arise. Again, the default position of Christ is to endorse his church's discipline and judgment according to this passage. The exception to the rule, again, would be if the church is acting unbiblically. Christ isn't going to endorse an unbiblical process. But the process itself is, in principle, legitimate. This is the job of the church. This is the authority of the church as she goes and makes disciples. Now, this might rub some of you the wrong way. But can you see that this is not actually, what I'm telling you, is not actually the highest possible view of the authority of the church over the individual, according to John chapter 20 and verse 23. But it's actually the lowest possible authority of the church over the individual, according to John chapter 20 and 23. Remember that the only alternative is that the church can actually forgive your sins or withhold, your forgive, withhold forgiveness from you, even if you've dealt directly with Jesus. <laughs> Matthew Henry's perspective that this verse teaches simply that the church has the authority to apply the general rule of the gospel to particular persons is a lower view of the church a lower view of the church's authority over the individual than the view that the church actually has authority to forgive or to withhold forgiveness. Matthew Henry's interpretation, which is also ours at CRBC, is actually the lowest possible view of the church's authority over the individual that's allowable according to John chapter 20 and verse 23. So if your view of the church's authority is lower than that, then your view of the church's authority over the individual is actually lower than the Bible's, which is problematic. 
the individual then should take heed that he's not doing something like along the lines of what Deuteronomy 29 and verse 19 warns about, namely, blessing himself in his heart, saying, I shall be safe, though I walk in the stubbornness of my heart. If the church considers your sins unforgiven, it is theoretically possible that the church is wrong. But you should soberly consider that the church has been given rightful and legitimate authority to make such determinations and to draw such conclusions. Therefore, rebelling against the scrutiny or the accountability of the church is a presumptuous and a dangerous thing to do. The other aspect of application is that it, that is important to point out is that Christ has tasked, is that as Christ has tasked the church with global evangelization and discipleship, right? Go make disciples of all nations. As the Father sent me, even so I am sending you. He has tasked us with his global evangelization and discipleship. He's given us the needful authority to determine to what extent the gospel is meeting with success in a particular locale or even in a particular person's life. Is this person a believer yet or not? He's given the church authority to do that. He's given the church authority to uh, maintain her purity, to keep danger out by practicing church discipline. He's given the church the commensurate authority here to deal with matters of whether someone is forgiven or whether someone is not forgiven. Since the church has been given this authority, as we carry out our responsibility of evangelization and discipleship, we should be careful to carry out this responsibility and this authority as precisely as possible. We ought never to exclude from membership someone who belongs to Christ, as if their sins are unforgiven and as if they have no place in the community of faith. We ought never to do this intentionally. If someone belongs to Christ, they ought to be welcome to join CRBC. For church membership simply signifies our endorsement of their profession of faith. Are we saying that this person is perfect? No. Are we even saying that we have to agree about every jot and tittle of uh, every doctrinal conviction? No. But we're saying we recognize this person as a brother or as a sister in Christ Jesus. And we are committed to following Jesus together. We ought not to ever intentionally go against this process if we know someone is a believer or in our best judgment is a believer. Secondly, we ought never to do it unintentionally. We must be very careful when scrutinizing membership applicants or carrying out church discipline not to be needlessly severe, denying a place in the community of the forgiven to someone who does indeed belong to Christ Jesus. Again, this means that people are going to join the church at various stages of Christian maturity. 
Some are going to have significant sins or significant doctrinal errors. But if we can ascertain that in our best judgment, this person is a brother or sister in Christ, this person is a forgiven person, that we ought not to be needlessly severe by excluding them. So we've got to be careful about that. We ought also never to receive into membership someone who does not belong to Christ. As if their sins are forgiven. As if they have a right to enter the community of faith. If they do not. To indicate to someone that we recognize them as a forgiven person. To deal in matters of forgiveness as is our prerogative to do in John chapter 20 and verse 23. Indicating to them that we recognize them as a forgiven person. Could be truly damning to their soul. If they proceed through life with the false assurance that they are a forgiven person. Because the church has told them that they're a forgiven person. That we recognize them as a forgiven person. If in fact they're not a forgiven person. And if by negligence we receive someone into membership. Or refuse to remove them from membership. Who gives evidence of not belonging to Christ. We do damage to the church itself. Allowing a little leaven. In, which will eventually leaven the whole lump, as 1 Corinthians chapter 5 says. But we also distort the gospel for the watching world, allowing whatever damning error of doctrine or practice this person holds to pass for genuine Christianity. So someone comes in with heresy, which is different than lesser doctrinal error. You can, you can still be a genuine Christian and have some doctrine that's mixed up. But heresy is when it crosses the line to like, this isn't even Christianity anymore. Right? When we allow heresy in the church, right? Or, and not again, not just sin, which is common to us all. I'm a sinner, you're a sinner. But when we allow severe, scandalous, unrepentant, persistent sin to whatever extent that it actually goes, hey, this person doesn't even have a credible profession of faith. Right? Again, it's a matter of degree, like it is with doctrine. When there's sin present, such that it actually undermines a person's profession of faith, and we don't deal with it, it dilutes the borders of like what even is orthodoxy. And what even is orthopraxy, right? Right, orthodoxy being right doctrine and orthopraxy being right practice. It distorts those. What even is orthodoxy? What even is orthopraxy? What even is Christianity doctrinally? What even is Christianity ethically, practically? See? Then this brings damage to the church, and it also brings disrepute on God himself, as if he is some kind of impotent savior who can't actually change people and make them more and more like Jesus, the only truly good man. Or it makes God seem like some kind of lesser being than he actually is. Some kind of sub-glorious being. So in conclusion and summary, as we saw last week, Jesus says to his disciples, as the Father sent me, even so I'm sending you. That's John chapter 20 and verse 21. 
This is the context of John 20 and verse 23. Jesus doesn't make a statement in verse 23 in vacuum. He says it immediately on the heels of this task of global evangelization and discipleship. Along with the responsibility to evangelize and disciple the world, Jesus gives the church the tools that it will need to enforce the boundaries of what is Christianity and what isn't. To preserve clarity for the sake of people, uh, individuals, so that they actually properly understand whether they're forgiven or not. For the sake of the church, so that it doesn't become impure or damaged in some way by, the, by insecure borders. Right? So that it protects the glory of God. Just like insecure borders are a harm to a political nation. A danger to a political nation. Insecure borders are a danger to a church. And so Jesus endorses the authority of the church to define her borders. Who's forgiven? Who's not forgiven? This is the prerogative of the church to do these things. It's a necessary tool that we're going to need. It's like he told us to chop down a tree and he gave us an axe. He told us to go evangelize and disciple the world and he gave us the authority to make this determination about who has dealt with Christ yet and who hasn't. And those false professors, those hypocrites and those heretics who want to creep in and say, yeah, I'm a Christian, I'm a Christian. The church actually has the authority to say, no, you're not. Somebody that professes faith in Christ but lives in a manner inconsistently with that. The church has the authority to say, we will not receive you into the membership of the church. Somebody who comes into the church but then wanders off the path. Again, we all sin, right? I'm not saying we have to be sinless. And there's a process of trying to reason and plead and pray and discuss with people. But if it's persistent enough and severe enough, the church has the authority to say, okay, we don't endorse your profession of faith anymore. The public record here is unforgiving. The church has the authority to do this based on this passage. All we're doing is applying the general rule of the gospel to particular persons. Again, the church can theoretically be wrong, and in such a case, Jesus will not disown his beloved. But the rule and the principle here is the church has the authority to do this, and Jesus endorses the church's authority and the church's exercise and the church's practice of these things. And as I mentioned, this is actually the lowest view of the church's authority over the individual, which is possible based on John chapter 20 and verse 23. So to embrace a lower view of the church's authority over the individual's profession of faith in this is actually sub-biblical. In view of this, then, the individual ought to soberly consider the church's authority to examine his profession of faith and to hold him accountable to biblical standards on an ongoing basis. In the case that discipline is warranted, to attempt to avoid it or to rebel against it entirely is presumptuous and dangerous. And the church ought to endeavor 
to fulfill her responsibility to apply the general rule of the gospel to particular persons as precisely and carefully as she can. Neither calling unforgiven someone who has actually dealt with Christ and is forgiven, nor calling forgiven someone who hasn't yet dealt with Christ and is actually unforgiven. Again, this is a instance of God's providence as we've just been making our way through John and it just so happens that we had membership candidates today, right? But here we are. And this is so often how it works. As you plod your way through, you come to pretty relevant passages at pretty relevant times. So may our judgments at CRBC be judgments that Jesus himself may endorse and keep it with this passage.